Order, let me welcome you all to the fourth hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 116th Congress. Today, we will hold an emergency hearing to address the issues of freedom and human rights in Hong Kong. For over five months, millions of brave Hong Kongers have been out on the streets demonstrating for freedom. Freedom from coercion, freedom from authoritarianism, and freedom to choose their future. And they have already succeeded to a great extent, not only because the Hong Kong authorities realized the folly of the so-called extradition bill, they've now withdrawn it and belatedly offered dialogue with civil society, but also because today, on the fifth anniversary of the Umbrella Movement, the demonstrators are showing to the world that democracy on Chinese soil is alive and well, and it is perfectly compatible with Chinese culture and history. As we celebrate their bravery and determination today, let us hope and pray that it will lead to a revitalization of democratic institutions throughout Asia. Promoting democracy and human rights will be vital for the United States to succeed in the Indo-Pacific and to prevail in the era of the so-called great power competition with Russia and China. These values differentiate the United States from the competition. These values are just and right, and they are worth fighting for. Today, we are privileged to hear from those who are on the front lines for the battle of freedom, for freedom, autonomy, and human rights. The United States should support their cause unreservedly. With that, I'll turn it over to Senator Markey for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much. And uh, thank you for convening this very important hearing and for your continued partnership on the subcommittee. And I want to thank our witnesses for their willingness to participate today, especially to discuss such a pressing set of issues uh, regarding the future of Hong Kong. 85,000 Americans live in Hong Kong and 1.3 million U.S. citizens visited or transited in 2018. According to the State Department, Hong Kong was the ninth largest destination for exports of U.S. goods. And according to the most recent data, U.S. exports to Hong Kong supported 188,000 United States jobs. But all is not well in the special administrative region. The Chinese government continues to intervene in Hong Kong affairs. And in the process, the degree of autonomy granted to Hong Kong under one country, two systems, the very autonomy that warrants special treatment by the United States under the Hong Kong Policy Act is eroding. And it is eroding significantly. The Chinese government backtracked on its commitment to allow universal suffrage. The resulting umbrella movement showed how strong-willed Hong Kong residents are. The police cracked down, but the protesters did not waver in their desire for freedom and for democracy. And when the extradition bill was proposed earlier this year, the people of Hong Kong took to the streets once again. Hong Kongers say they look to the United States as a beacon of freedom, but it is we who are moved by their brave examples. Sensing their promised autonomy slipping away, and surely aware that authoritarians seek to repress them, the people of Hong Kong are reminding the world that democratic aspirations are universal. Some call the protest leaderless, but as Hong Kong's own Johnson Young has suggested, everyone who risks their well-being through peaceful pro-democracy protests is showing leadership. 
In my view, the streets of Hong Kong are filled with leaders. The authorities have responded to popular action with police misconduct. Police must cease their overreach and provide timely access to lawyers, to family members, and medical professionals for, re for persons in custody. And we in the United States must do what we can to prevent U.S. crowd control equipment from making its way into the hands of repressive forces. We should also be aware that media organizations based in mainland China are obscuring protesters' demands by suggesting that those in the streets seek only destruction. Isolated instances of violence amplified by authoritarian media can undercut the protests by fueling this narrative. As we speak, Facebook is still allowing Chinese state-run organizations to purchase advertisements that cast protesters as extremists. Social media organizations must not be allowed to use in a way that enables repression. Whatever obstacles are put in their way, the people of Hong Kong have demonstrated their commitment to achieving democratic rule, including free and fair elections. While it is up to the residents of Hong Kong to take the lead in the fight for their fundamental human rights, we in the United States can, and we should make clear what values we want to see in the world. So I was proud to be an original co-sponsor of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which passed out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yesterday, and I was pleased that the House passed its version on the same day. We have numerous steps yet to go, but I am hopeful that Congress can speak with one voice on the need for Hong Kong to retain its autonomy and for the citizens to enjoy all of the liberties and rights which they deserve. After all, the United States simply cannot afford to cede leadership on promoting freedom around the world. So once again, Mr. Chairman, I thank you, and I look forward to exploring these issues with our witnesses. Thank you, Senator Markey, and uh, thank you to all the witnesses for being here today. Uh, we kindly ask you to limit your verbal remarks to no more than five minutes, and your full written statements will be included uh, in the record. Uh, our first witness is Mr. Nathan Law, who is the founding chairman and current standing committee member of the pro-democracy uh, organization Demosisto. During the 2014 Umbrella Movement, Mr. Law was one of the five student leaders who debated on live television with then Chief Secretary for Administration, Carrie Lam. In 2016, Mr. Law became Asia's second youngest, excuse me, became Asia's youngest ever elected. It was me who was the second youngest member of the Senate. You're the second youngest ever elected uh, lawmaker, uh, youngest ever elected lawmaker when you won a seat in the Hong Kong uh, Legislative Council, uh, later uh, disqualified and imprisoned for several months. Uh, Mr. Law, welcome to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and uh, privileged to have you testify before us and we cannot thank you enough for your commitment uh, to freedom. We're also joined by Steve Yates, our second witness, Mr. Yates, uh, currently the Chief Executive Officer of the D.C. International Advisory, a strategic risk and public policy firm. Previously, Mr. Yates served in the White House as Deputy Assistant to the Vice President for National Security Affairs from 2001 to 2005. During his tenure in government, he provided direct support to the Vice President and his National Security Advisor for key White House deliberations. Notably, Mr. Yates testified before this subcommittee on the same topic on July 1st, 1999, or two years after the handover of Hong Kong to mainland China in 1997. Welcome, Mr. Yates. We look forward to hearing your perspective, especially with the benefit of the 20-year hindsight from your last appearance before this committee. 
Our third witness today is Dr. Michael Martin, who is the specialist in Asian affairs at the Congressional Research Service, the Library of Congress. Dr. Martin is a leading national authority on Hong Kong, both from his work at CRS and having lived and worked in Hong Kong for a number of years. From 1994 to 1998, Dr. Martin was the assistant chief economist for the Hong Kong Trade Development Council. Uh, prior to his time with uh, the council, Mr. Martin, Dr. Martin talked, uh, taught at Hong Kong Baptist University, uh, Doshisha University in Japan, Colby College, and Tufts University. Welcome, Dr. Martin. Look forward to hearing from you as well. Mr. Law, you may begin your uh, statement. Thank you. Chairman Gartner, Senator Murky, and Senator Young, good morning. This day, five years ago, September 26 of 2014, marked the beginning of the umbrella movement, which saw hundreds of thousands of Hong Kong people occupying major throughways for three months in pursuit of democracy. It was our response to Chinese leaders who broke their promise of universal suffrage. The movement then escalated as the police responded by firing 87 canisters of tear gas against peaceful protesters. The movement was ultimately unsuccessful in realizing our dream of a democratic society. As a student leader, I was even subsequently being present for my role. But I distinctly remember that on the last day of our occupation, fellow protesters hung a large banner proclaiming, we will be back on Harcourt Row, just outside the government headquarters. Five years later, during this past summer of discontent, we have made good on that promise. <clears throat> Public anger in Hong Kong exploded in early June this year against a proposed extradition law that would have allowed it criminal suspect of Hong Kong to face trial in China, where the legal system operates at, it, at the behest and mercy of the ruling Communist Party. But with more than two million people marching down to the streets, we exerted an unprecedented amount of pressure to the government and forced Chief Executive Carrie Lam to first suspend the bill in mid-June before fully restoring it early this month. But our struggle has moved far beyond a single bill or a particular leader. What we demand is a systematic reform in a way that honors the original spirit of one country, two system framework. Our prosperity and dignity as a society have been built on the success of the rule of law, the protection of human rights and freedom, and our autonomy. But without democracy, these values and status are extremely fragile. For the law is not written by the people, there's no genuine rule of law. For the government is not formed by the, for by the people, there is no real self-government, which is the authentic meaning of autonomy. The fact that I, as the youngest lawmaker in Hong Kong's history, was forcefully unseated by Beijing is a testimony to the hollowness of both the rule of law and our autonomy. We need democratic reform now. Instead of alleviating the tension, the Hong Kong government has been hiding behind the police force. To make matters worse, thugs have been involved in committing indiscriminate violence against not just protesters, but random passers-by, while the police turned a blind eye to the atrocity. What I do wish to stress is that the apparent collusion between the Hong Kong police force and the pro-Beijing gangsters have ignited public anger. These actions constitute a gross violation of our universal human rights. The police have shot protesters in the head, resulting in at least three cases of permanent eye damage. First aiders have been blocked when they have tried it to apply treatment on the injuries. 
Some have even been arrested. Once detained, protesters have to face torture in the police stations where access to lawyers is increasingly difficult. The New York Times recently highlighted one story. A protester's shoulder joint was fractured into four pieces and detached from the bone below. Many others suffered concussions while police were brutally assaulting them during the arrest. They were tra then transferred to the notorious Sun Oakland Holding Center close to the Hong Kong-China border. According to a report by Amnesty International, subsequent rounds of torture took place in that remote center, which is hardly accessible to the public, journalists, or even lawyers. Beyond physical abuse, there is a prevalent, dangerous mentality of dehumanization among the police. They frame protesters as crocodiles and objects. This intensifies their brutalities by reducing their sympathy, which was the same tactics applied during the Rwanda genocide. The level of atrocity, obviously, is not comparable, but the essence of dehumanization should be equally alarming. Even though the police brutality is astonishing, and the government must be held accountable for this misbehavior, the crux of the problem is the overreach of the Chinese Communist Party. The international community should join hands with us and urge Beijing to honor the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984, which governs the transfer of sovereignty and the application of one country, two system in Hong Kong. China in recent years has repeatedly declared the treaty invalid as an excuse to not fulfill its obligations because they have been overtly and consistently violating the instructions in the treaty. Earlier this week, in his address to the United Nations General Assembly in New York, President Donald Trump proclaimed, the world fully expects that Chinese government will honor its binding treaty made with the British and register with the United Nations in which China commits to protecting Hong Kong's freedom, legal system, and democratic way of life. How China chooses to handle this situation will say a great deal about its role in the world in the future. I welcome this as a sign that the administration is aware of the Chinese government's record of breaking promises just as a new round of trade talks have resumed. But concrete actions are of vital importance. Yesterday, both the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee have passed the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act unanimously. The piece of legislation will now move ahead for consideration on both the House and Senate floors. I'm therefore speaking today to seek every senator's support. Hong Kongers cannot stand alone in this great battle against the largest authoritarian power in the 21st century. As we approach 1st of October, which marks the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, I hope to remind Beijing that hearts and minds cannot be simply bought off with heavily orchestrated ceremonies. Hong Kong people will continue their struggle for autonomy and democracy. You could demonstrate your bravery by honoring your own words, or else you will only convey your cowardice by committing yet another crackdown on the people. The world of free societies is watching you. Thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Law. Thank you for your testimony, your courage, uh, and uh, for being here today. Mr. Yates. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, distinguished members of the committee. Uh, it was an honor and privilege to appear before this subcommittee 20 years ago. Uh, what I have lost by way of hair and other kinds of uh, interesting experiences, hopefully I've added with some perspective that might inform our conversation going forward. I think this is an incredibly important conversation, one that I hope is national, one that I hope continues to be bipartisan. Uh, I think this is, leads into one of the most important strategic issues we face as a nation today. I'll begin basically where uh, Nathan left off with the remarks the President gave at the UN General Assembly. I think it frames the reason why what's happening in Hong Kong has strategic value in a way that I think that can be supported by partisan uh, basis and also among most Americans. Noting that how China chooses to handle the situation in Hong Kong tells us a great deal about the kind of country it's becoming. Uh, but I think there's two key tests that are right before us. Number one, can Beijing be trusted to honor international obligations? Number two, can the People's Republic of China peacefully coexist with any free society? And how they're handling the situation in Hong Kong, I would have to say, is not reassuring on either of those tests. In the interest of time and recognizing the full statement that's been in the record, I'll move ahead into some of the things that I think have changed uh, in the 22 years since the handover that affect some of the assumptions that our government had uh, and that some of our partners around the world had about what to expect in this transition of sovereignty from, China to, from Britain to China. First, China's self-image has changed profoundly over the last 20 years. Uh, in 1997, China was a more humble nation. Uh, it had been humbled by its own massacre of its own people in Tiananmen Square, but also an economic recession that it needed to build up out of in the wake of international sanctions and their own economic misdeeds. China today is not a humble nation, uh, and that is an interesting factor in how we might gauge our expectations of how they see their interests in Hong Kong. Xi Jinping is a different kind of leader. Uh, there, we had been led over the years to look at the Deng Xiaoping era of reform and opening as a more optimistic view of the direction that China broadly was going. Socialism with Chinese characteristics has turned into what I think is more of a cultural revolution 2.0. Uh, and I, I think the militarization of propaganda and I think radical nationalism uh, is a part of Xi Jinping's leadership. I think our fundamental assumptions about the Communist Party were wrong. Far too long, too many experts on China have basically proclaimed that China, the Communist Party is communist in name only. Uh, and I think that what we're witnessing uh, is that it is a party that remains very powerful, very much in control of things, not just within its own country, but influencing institutions around the world. Mainstream assumptions about the direction China was going to go more broadly, beyond the party, were wrong, frankly. We believed that through engagement and privileged access to our markets and to our technology was going to liberalize Chinese society, that the benefits could go to its people and that would have a normative effect on the country. But those benefits have been disproportionately acquired by the party uh, more than its people. Turns out one of the things that maybe we got wrong was that the Hong Kong people care about more than just business. Uh, I think it was stunning but also inspiring to imagine any polity, two out of seven million people going to the streets and agreeing on anything 
in the entire world. That's an important statement, but it's a reminder that clearly the government of China and the government of Hong Kong touched a nerve, something very, very sensitive, uh, probably more so than they or maybe even we anticipated. I think it's incredibly important today that we focus forward, that promises made must be promises kept. Uh, it's an important test with global consequences in Hong Kong. If China's current leadership is willing to violate the terms of a bilateral treaty registered at the United Nations, how can any government or party enter into any new agreements in good faith with this leadership? The recommendations that I listed in my, in my uh, statement, uh, happy to go into questions about. I congratulate the, the full committee uh, and look forward to the president welcoming a bipartisan, unanimous support for human rights and democracy in Hong Kong. It's an important signal in politics. It's not enough to do good. You have to be seen doing good. And I think the United States Senate, the United States House, and hopefully the United States government in its entirety is seen, do, seen doing right by the people of Hong Kong. Last thing I would emphasize is to encourage what was done 20 years ago also, is to engage in a full-scale review uh, of the evidence we have of the efficacy of our, our strategy towards China. Fundamental assumptions, I think, have been challenged. Conventional wisdom is upside down. Uh, and I think it's important for us to have a broad national conversation about how to write our China policy, a policy that, to me, lamentably, has been incredibly lazy for 50 years. No other policy toward any major issue or nation in the world has remained roughly intact for 50 years. And yet China has changed, and our assumptions should have changed, and our policy should adjust. Last, I'd conclude with, when you stand up for human rights and democracy related to China, there will be people who accuse you of being anti-China. And all I would say is there is no more anti-China organization on this planet than the Communist Party of China. It is they who conducted a revolution against their own people. It is they who conducted a revolution against their vaunted traditions and culture. It is they who have murdered more Chinese people in the history of mankind than anyone else. It is they who have robbed their people of more economic opportunity and freedom than anyone else. There is nothing more pro-China than to stand up for these fundamental freedoms on behalf of the people they say they serve. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Mr. Chairman, and welcome your questions. Thank you, Mr. Yates. Uh, Dr. Martin. Chairman Gardner, a Ranking Member Markey, Senator Young, it's an honor and a privilege to testify at today's hearing concerning the emergency situation in Hong Kong. At its heart, the 2019 pro-democracy protests are a conservative movement. The protesters seek to protect and maintain the Hong Kong they believe the Chinese and Hong Kong governments promised that would continue to exist at least until July 1, 2047. Their Hong Kong is a community that is governed by the rule of law, one that respects human rights and civil liberties. It is a society where people have freedom of speech, thought, and assembly without fear of retaliation, rights protected by the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984. It is also a Hong Kong ruled by the people of Hong Kong and will one day elect its chief executive and all the members of its legislative council by universal suffrage in elections in which any eligible resident can run as a candidate, a promise made by China in Hong Kong's basic law. For the first few years after July 1, 1997, it seemed that China's leaders were committed to making the concept of one country, two systems work in Hong Kong, perhaps at least in part to demonstrate to Taiwan that reunification is possible. 
As time progressed, the actions of the Chinese and Hong Kong governments had threatened freedom of speech, constricted local political choice, and undermined Hong Kong's promised high degree of autonomy. Since 1997, many people in Hong Kong believe that if they did not rise up in protest, the city they wish to protect and maintain will disappear. In 2003, an estimated half million people rallied in opposition to a proposed national security bill that they felt would curtail their civil liberties. In 2014, thousands of protesters occupied the streets of Hong Kong's Admiralty, Causeway Bay, and Mong Kok districts for nearly three months, an event known as the Umbrella Movement, to object to a decision by the Chinese government that the protesters thought would unduly restrict the nomination process for the chief executive. Now in 2019, more than one million people have risen up to oppose proposed legislation that for the first time would have permitted the extradition of a criminal suspect from Hong Kong to mainland China to face what Nathan just said and many in Hong Kong consider an unfair and corrupt court system. The Chinese government views the current situation in Hong Kong from a very different perspective. For China's leaders, the United Kingdom acquired Hong Kong illegitimately under the terms of unequal treaties tied to the Opium Wars. To them, Hong Kong's return to Chinese sovereignty in 1997 redressed a past injustice and restored the nation's territorial integrity. To them, as Article I of the Basic Law states, the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region is an inalienable part of the People's Republic of China. China state media have portrayed the 2019 protests as part of an international plot led by the United States to undermine China's authority over Hong Kong and encourage separatism. As such, China's leaders see the protests as a threat to national sovereignty and integrity. As a result, the Chinese government has pressed the Hong Kong government to use greater force to redress this threat and end the protests. For the Hong Kong government, all four of its chief executives to date have struggled with balancing their obligations to the Chinese government and to the people of Hong Kong. In the end, all four arguably have been more beholden to the Chinese government to, than to their fellow Hong Kongers. These fundamentally different perspectives of the protesters and the government of Hong Kong and China do not offer a ready solution for the current crisis. For now, it appears the protests will continue until either the protesters' five demands are met or more dramatic action is taken by the Chinese and Hong Kong governments. There are many other issues I could have brought up today in my testimony, but for sake of time, I wanted to limit it to what I thought was the fundamental issue, the key differences of perspective between the protesters and the Hong Kong and Chinese government. Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, Senator Young, thank you again for the opportunity to testify, and I am pleased to respond to any questions you and other people may have. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Martin, and thank you again, all three, for your, your testimony today. Uh, Mr. Law, uh, you and I have had the occasion to meet before, uh, and uh, I can't tell you how uh, grateful I am for your presence here before this committee and before the Congress of the United States and uh, the people of this country who stand with Hong Kong uh, and the autonomy that you fight for and the freedoms that you strive for. The first visit that I made to Hong Kong um, several years ago, uh, President Xi was a relatively new leader in China. 
some of the civil society leaders that I, leaders that I had met with at the time had said things to the effect of, well, perhaps um, the anti-corruption campaign that President Xi is leading or perhaps some of the policies that he's enacting uh, are because he's a real reformer uh, and that he is cracking down in this way so that he'll have the freedom and the ability to make real reforms that could uh, turn China away from uh, an authoritarian rise or away from a, uh, the society that uh, they were locked into, perhaps, and they would build more freedoms. But I think it's pretty clear uh, after uh, activities that we've seen uh, throughout China, around China, throughout the region, in Hong Kong, as they treat Taiwan as well, that that's not the case, uh, that this is not a reformer leader, that this is not an opening leader for more opportunity of freedom and autonomy, uh, human rights, and the dignity that goes along with every person uh, in uh, this world, let alone in China. And so uh, the discussions we had on Hong Kong led to discussions about what makes uh, this work in Hong Kong. How will Hong Kong uh, survive under this uh, leadership of President Xi? and the new governance, the new direction, the, the more authoritarian direction of China. When I met with U.S. businesses, they would talk about the, the, the independence of the judiciary. When I talked to civil society, they would talk about the independence of the judiciary. And as we saw indexes of freedom or indexes of economic freedoms or personal liberties or indexes or, or snooze stories of book owners being kidnapped and people taken from Hong Kong into China, uh, and as we saw that, uh, the news of those activities increase and the decline of freedoms uh, multiply, people would always go back to the freedom of the independence, uh, the freedom and independence of the judiciary in Hong Kong. And it just seems to me, looking in from the United States to what was happening in Hong Kong, that the extradition bill that was put forward seemed to strike at the very core of that independence. Mr. Law, do you agree with that, or am I misreading it, and how should I... Uh, think about what, what I learned when I was there and how it applies today and, and uh, the protests and, and the work that you've taken. Thanks for the question, uh, Chairman Gartner. And I think your observation is um, precise about what's happening in Hong Kong. I think what's happening in Hong Kong is not an isolated case. It's an all-rounded policy uh, by China. If you look at the expanding uh, concentration camp in Xinjiang, you look at the cultural wipeout in uh, Tibet, you look at the... Uh, um, intimidation to, China, to Taiwan, and all sorts of uh, civic society cracking down in mainland China. You will see that the same process and the same way of annihilation of free society and free values are happening in China. And the way that they treat these regions are not only treating um, their internal affairs, but they are also having an authoritarian expan expansionist angle that they're treating the world by uh, using like Belt and Road Initiative and all sort of um, geopolitical um, um, influence to get some other places into a more authoritarian way. And we could see that trend from a lot of index and a lot of reports from uh, INGO who, which looked into that issue. So I, I do believe that um, the trend in Hong Kong is definitely an issue for Hong Kong people because it threatens our freedom and threatens our rule of law, and it, uh, these are the cornerstones of our prosperity. But also, it is a, an issue that the world has to join hand and face because the way that they expand uh, and export authoritarianism definitely hamper the um, spread of democracy and result the revival of authoritarianism and the recess 
of democracy. So I, I do believe that um, what's happening in Hong Kong is a great symbol of how China treats the world order and uh, free societies. And I do believe that what's happening in Hong Kong and we as a forefront of the clash of authoritarian and liberal values, it needs more attention and help and concrete vital support from the free society. So I, I think like, the observation is accurate and I think it should be transformed into actions in countering the um, kind of encroachment in Hong Kong's free society. You mentioned the Hong Kong Act, uh, and we've talked about the Hong Kong Act that passed both the House and Senate committees yesterday. Uh, what more would you like to see from uh, the United States uh, to address what you just mentioned? Well, um, first of all, I, I do hope that um, it can be passed in the floors of um, House and, and Senate. And I think Hong Kong people are extremely excited about it because it is a way that the, um, the global community, especially the U.S., showing support to Hong Kong and um, sometimes we feel isolated because um, of the tightened control of China, and sometimes people see Hong Kong as an economic entity, but not a place that rapid protests and fight for democracy took place. But for now, we, we, we demonstrate our determination of fighting for democracy and autonomy, and um, our demand is just so humble because we just want China to do what they have promised and the way they treat Hong Kong, as President Trump just said, will set an example of how they treat the other international treaties. So I do believe that we have a high moral ground and a necessary helping hand should be delivered from the other uh, places like um, the US or even the UN and some other international organizations. As for the bill, of course, uh, the bill has a huge uh, portion of that bill is to sanction the officials who are responsible for the encroachment in Hong Kong. And I do believe it plays an important role. Just look at the kids and, 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 and um, daughters of our senior officials in Hong Kong. They are not even studying in Hong Kong. They just kind of mess up Hong Kong system and then take their daughters and kids overseas and mm -hmm. let them to be British or or, or U.S. citizens, where they reap all the fruits, all the rewards from China giving them in the expense of Hong Kong's future. So I do believe that this set of um, sanctions it, it is kind of a, a, a way that to warn them that you can get it both ways. For China and for the officials in Hong Kong, you can get it both ways. If you are rewarding Hong Kong's autonomy, you cannot be rewarded by doing so, because you're violating a lot of cornerstone of our society. So I do think that even though the bill is passed, the administration should take the responsibility actively and acting this portion of the bill in order to send a signal to them. Thank you, Mr. Law. Uh, Senator Markey. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the Hong Kong Policy Act of 1992 allows, but does not require, the United States to treat Hong Kong differently than China. And I was proud to vote. Uh, for that act as a member of the House of Representatives, but I'm growing increasingly concerned about Hong Kong's level of autonomy and what that means for U.S. policy going forward. So, Dr. Martin, what degree of autonomy does Hong Kong currently have, and what are the chances that Hong Kong can increase its autonomy in the coming months and years, giving, given the fact that it's a 50-year deal, uh, and we're now 22 years into uh, that uh, process. Um, Senator Markey, a very good question um, and one that's very difficult to answer. I would say different aspects of Hong Kong um, 
autonomy remains relatively high, but other parts less so. There have been a number of actions taken by the Chinese central government, for example, in interpreting the basic law, what they call interpreting the basic law, that ends up restricting the governance of Hong Kong, uh, one of which was utilized to disqualify Nathan Law and five other members of the Legislative Council who were elected by adding provisions <coughs> in, the in the local Hong Kong or the ordinance, the basic law, regarding how to take oaths. So you have a number of areas in terms of the legal environment where those uh, the actions of the Chinese central government have reduced the autonomy of Hong Kong. A, a concern right now in the protest movement is to what extent are the Hong Kong police force reporting to the chief executive, Carrie Lam, or are they reporting to other authorities? There are a lot of rumors floating around in the current environment, but there are some signs that Basically, the Hong Kong police force are acting with a high degree of independence uh, and may be reporting to authorities in the liaison office in Hong Kong, as well as in Shenzhen or even central government in China. And one other aspect where you see an erosion of autonomy is the involvement of the liaison office in the political environment in Hong Kong. It is quite well known in Hong Kong that the liaison office communicates to political figures in the business community about who they want to be the chief executive, who they want elected in district council elections, which are coming up in November. Joshua Wong hopes to run, but it's not clear he'll be able to run. Um, so the liaison office is increasingly active in local politics. It's provision in the basic law that says no agent of or agency in the Chinese central government can in, be involved in the local internal affairs of Hong Kong. That's another area people point to violations. So let me ask you this, um, Mr. Lahr. On August 30th, I wrote to Mark Zuckerberg asking why Facebook runs targeted ads for state-controlled media organizations, including those in mainland China, that dehumanize and spread disinformation about protesters. Um, unlike Twitter, which changed its policy during the protest, Facebook still, at this very moment, and which it confirmed in its responses to my letter. I sent them a letter on August 30th, and in their response to me, um, they said that they do accept money from Chinese state-run outlets that use its platform to cast protesters as rioters and as extremists. So, Mr. Law, what impact do you think Chinese state media content spread on social platforms like Facebook might have on these protests and on the reaction to them? Well, thank, thanks for the question, Senator Murky. And I do believe that the way um, Chinese are manipulating propaganda in terms of um, dehumanizing the protesters and stigmatizing the protests is overwhelming um, because um, I think um, this is also an ideology that affects uh, not only the citizens who are in support of pro-Beijing camp, but also the law enforcement. So you can see a lot of clips that they are proclaiming the protesters as cockroaches, or even the reporters, and they, well, therefore they legitimize their use of force, or even those 
are obviously violating the protocol that they should follow in order to um, do their crackdown, and that's what uh, Carrie Lam rely on. So I do believe that um, like for social medias and any other advertising companies should be aware of that tactics, because sometimes if you are like, trying to be neutral and get advertisement for um, some other like, um, different sites of uh, the, the organization, you may actually helping them in spread of certain ideology. So I think um, the dehumanization that the police force has been using, just like the one uh, the Rwanda genocide had adopted, even though the degree is um, incomparable, but the essence is the same. So what do you want Facebook to do? Well, of course, uh, like Facebook and Twitter had, have been taking measures to delete uh, accounts recently by, uh, uh, well, orchestrated by uh, Chinese government. And I, I applaud for these measures. I hope them continue to do so. And if they find any advertisement that is spreading hate speech, disinformation, and also dehumanization, uh, well, uh, discourse towards the protesters and Hong Kong people, they should take prompt actions to stop it. Okay, great. Um, what, Mr. Yates or Mr. Martin, what role is social media playing in this, uh, and especially American companies in their complicity uh, in any of these activities? We know in Burma it happens, but here in Hong Kong as well. So if you could just give us your views on that. Well, Senator, I think it's an incredibly important issue given that these were supposed to be tools of liberation. Uh, the advent of the internet, social media, all these things were supposed to connect people in positive ways, uh, allow for free expression. Uh, and what we see in the Communist Party of China is very effectively using the tools of liberation now as militarized tools of control and intimidation. Uh, and so trying to find policy and technical ways to combat oppressors' abilities to use these tools against free people, I think is a, a massive challenge, and we need to be pressing those companies to be a part of it. What's happening in Hong Kong today on using the use of those tools is going to be used in Taiwan in their upcoming election in January, where there's, where there's definitely going to be an attempt to try to manipulate information and possibly undermine the legitimacy of an election outcome. Uh, those same tools very well could be deployed in the United States over the course of 2020. Uh, in trying to shape American minds. The most offensive image among many, I think, out of Hong Kong in recent times was a very slickly produced video that compared the protesters in, in, in Hong Kong to the Taliban and suggested that they were terrorists. Uh, and so we have money, technology, and social platforms that are weaponizing propaganda in ways I don't think we've ever seen. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Young. Mr. Law, thank you for your courage, for your activism, for your presence here today. Let me begin by offering a message once again to the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Um, you covet strength, you covet control, you covet stability. Uh, you have a pattern of broken promises, however. And I believe that uh, your pattern of uh, one-sided free trade of predatory economic practices, your effort to export the tools of population control uh, in an Orwellian fashion uh, through your Belt and Road Initiative, your human rights transgressions. I predict that by continuing to expose these practices, 
by shining a bright light on them. A credibility gap is not only, uh, it's not only been exposed, but uh, it will continue to grow. And the Chinese leadership will one day fall into it. And, and, and so your presence here today, Mr. Law, I, I think is uh, really important, um, as is your continued activism. My only uh, fear, anxiety, is that you and others, in fairly short order, may not enjoy the political space, the freedom to continue exposing um, these practices, these violations of your human rights. There's legislation, as, as I know um, you are aware, and, and you have urged my colleagues and I to support uh, the, uh, before us here in the U.S. Senate that's been offered by Senator Rubio. It would prohibit the State Department from denying a visa because the individual applying has been arrested or detained or had Hong Kong or Chinese government take action against him or her. Um, I believe we should welcome Hong Kongers who believe that rights are not the gifts of government, but instead uh, they are, are instead, um, uh, they, they are gifts from God or a creator or whatever one's uh, faith tradition or philosophical perspective might be. Um, I believe that we should welcome Hong Kongers who understand uh, that the job of our government leaders is, is to represent and serve, but not to rule. And so going beyond Senator Rubio's legislation, which I really believe will pass, I hope will pass, I wonder whether creation of a special immigration status for any besieged Hong Kongers seeking to come to the United States of America would be of interest to those protesting so that they too might enjoy uh, living in freedom and advancing democratic values, but also so that they too might work with others, other like-minded individuals in the United States of America who might be mobilized to contest Chinese authoritarianism and the threat it poses to all democratic, peaceful societies worldwide. And so I ask you, do you believe that the creation of this sort of special immigration status might be of interest to many Hong Kongers? Well, thank you for the question, uh, Senator Yang, and the encouragement and the great suggestion. I, I do believe that uh, the special status or like a criteria for Hong Kong um, protesters or people who believe in universal values as uh, the others in this room could indeed boost the morale and actually help Hong Kong people. Because if you look at the way the, the, the government has been prosecuting and arresting the protesters, basically they do it in an arbitrary faction, arbitrary faction and do it to intimidate people not to go out on the street and conflict with the police and speak up for the justice. So I do believe that if uh, such a recognition from the US, from the state, and especially in terms of uh, supporting the people who stand up for their justice in Hong Kong, indeed help them, and the protesters in Hong Kong will welcome this measure. Well, the leaders, so many of the leaders, the communist leaders in, in, in Hong Kong, as you indicated, send their own children to the United States, to the United Kingdom, uh, to enjoy our freedoms, 
to be educated, uh, and, and so forth, and they'll continue to do so. And, and so it, it strikes me as right and proper that uh, we give strong consideration to affording similar dispensation to those Hong Kongers who are, are prepared to put everything on the line, uh, their lives, their fortunes, uh, their sacred honor, in order to defend the very values uh, that our country is trying to uphold. I also know that there are some who may prefer to continue to stay in Hong Kong, to march for freedom and democratic values. Uh, and and um, I certainly uh, would be respectful of that. But um, uh, with, with your direction, I think we'll, we will uh, we'll work on that initiative. I appreciate the feedback. On September 9th, Mr. Law, the Global Times, a Chinese news publication, said that the mainland is set to defend Hong Kong. Meanwhile, media reports in China have characterized the protesters as violent radicals and mobsters. And you indicated in your testimony they, they've even called them cockroaches, dehumanizing them, while praising the police for showing great professionalism and restraint. This seems to be setting the stage for a larger crackdown, uh, a more serious one. So if mainland China moves in to suppress Hong Kongers, I am concerned that we could witness something on the scale of or, or something that uh, is uh, you know, on par with the gravity of the Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, which I think has been scrubbed from um, uh, the, the internet uh, for, for most of those who, who live in mainland China. What will the next steps by mainland China uh, tell you about Hong Kong's future and the mainland's ambitions? Well, of course, um, I, I do think that um, there are signals of, of them showing a tougher stance on Hong Kong by like deploying troops near to the Hong Kong border and uh, sending all the messages online and and. and intimidating Hong Kong people. But I do think that Hong Kong still play an important role in, in, in the economy, especially uh, Hong Kong is the um, largest port of getting money in, getting FDI in China, and getting, mon getting the money out of China. And also it provides uh, like Pivotal, uh, well, support for the uh, Belt and Road Initiative and all sorts of things that could help uh, China to catalyze it. So I, I do believe that they will be making a very cautious decision in terms of sending troops in, in Hong Kong to create another scene resembles the world about 1989. But it doesn't mean that they will stop the suppression. It, it, it will be happened in a more subtle way. For example, the police force will be um, expanding their power and torturing all the protesters in a place that no camera will capture them and in a place that uh, no hospital will, will be willing to like kind of, um, well, get treatment on them and, and et cetera because the protesters are too afraid of um, going to the hospital and being arrested and, and so on. So I do believe that uh, there is a potential crackdown um, took place in Hong Kong in the future, especially it's getting close to 1st of October, which uh, the Chinese go government will be celebrating its 70th anniversary, and the crackdown will get much more severe. So I do believe that is an important date that we should put focus on and uh, closely monitor how China acts and how the like, state apparatus in Hong Kong operates. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Young. 
Mr. Law, I think one of the more alarming images that I saw at the very, in the heart of some of the protests a few weeks ago, uh, I was at a company in Colorado that does a lot of uh, spatial imaging, and one of the uh, employees showed me an image uh, of a basically buildup, uh, looked like a military buildup uh, on the border of Hong Kong, and you saw these uh, what looked like, at least from space, an armored personnel carriers almost in a stadium of some kind that looked like they were ready to, to invade. Um, so a couple of questions. Do you still see that kind of buildup along the border? Um, do you still see the shocking videos that we saw in the United States of these white-shirted um, thugs uh, at a train station beating people randomly as they went by as the police just simply ignored what was happening. Do you still see those kinds of things? Is it uh, random? Is it the force still there? The pressure still there? Well, thank you for the question, Chairman Garner. And um, the presence of the collusion of thugs and police is still very obvious. And um, from the uh, recent protests, we can see signs of the gangsters attacking uh, the protesters. And when uh, the police were approaching, they were just guarding those uh, gangsters out and arresting those who were under attacked by them. So um, I do believe that um, the, the government has been outsourcing violence to these gangsters in order to intimidate um, the protesters and assault them. And um, that's the way that Hong Kong has turned into a police state, which um, two sources of violence, no matter the formal one or informal one, are actually targeting the protesters and, 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 and harming them. So I do believe it's a worrying um, phenomenon, and that's exactly uh, how Chinese government wanted to uh, manipulate the situation of Hong Kong. Obviously, a lot of these uh, gangsters, they, well, at the morning, cross-border bus, like, drove them to the site, and then after they attacked, they just drove, drove back to mainland China. There's no way to trace them, there's no way to follow them, and that's uh, under the uh, allocation of the Chinese Communist Party. So um, I do believe that is a worrying trend, and we should be aware of that. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Yates, in your testimony, you talked about recommendations. You talked about visiting Hong Kong, and you talked about seeking access to detained uh, demonstrators. Mr. Law talked about torturing protesters. Uh, what, what do we know about how many demonstrators may be detained? Uh, what can we do? What should we do? Is there a role that United Station, United, United States or other uh, international uh, organizations could play in this to make sure that, uh, that, that uh, these protesters, these detained demonstrators are okay? Well, thank you, sir. Uh, I do believe that there is a role to play. Some, some of your colleagues and maybe some of you in, in due course will, will visit Hong Kong and it's near abroad. Uh, when you do, we have decades of cooperation with Hong Kong authorities. Uh, we've invested lots of money in joint training and other kinds of activities over the years. Uh, and there are many, many truly professional and respectable people who work in that government. Uh, some of them even risk their fortunes joining the demonstrators. Uh, and so I think there is value in going and engaging. Uh, I don't have a good gauge on the total numbers of those arrested. Uh, there seems to be places they're being held uh, and questioned 
in, in ways that are not consistent with the Hong Kong we had thought we were dealing with. Uh, I think that it's important to seek access to these facilities. There are some named ones. I'd be able, happy to share a list uh, that I've been given uh, that are worth going and seeing. Uh, of course, we have experience in other parts of the world uh, where there are political prisoners being held. And I do consider people who have peacefully protested uh, to be political prisoners if they're being incarcerated. Uh, so uh, I do think that there's a role. I would encourage all members to avail themselves of it to the, time, to the extent time allows. Uh, and I think that we may actually find some allies within the Hong Kong government that want transparency and accountability too. Uh, thank you, Mr. Yates. If you could provide that list, uh, please do so. Mr. Law, uh, any, any idea of, of what you're seeing, uh, demonstrators that are jailed? Uh, you mentioned uh, concern about their treatment. Well, um, obviously, um, a lot of torture happening on them are out of camera, and it relies on the international, um, no matter news organization or uh, NGOs like Amnesty International to do a thorough um, investigation on it. And I do believe that this um, evidence should be valued and uh, should be brought up no matter to the floor of um, the, 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 the Congress or any other places in the U.S. that um, could actually be evidence to apply some pressure to, uh, to the Hong Kong government and also um, the law enforcement. And these could actually be evidence if in future there's any possible sanction on them. And, um, well, um, that could create a uh, uh, kind of um, atmosphere for them to let them know that even though those things that they have done were without surveillance, but actually people could still speak on that. They will be punished for the misbehaviors of what they have been doing. So I, I do believe that um, other than uh, well helping them by uh, well this kind of um, um, well um, kind of measures that we can take, also um, for the U.S. and uh, well what I've just mentioned and. Senator Young has just mentioned about the visa and about any status or academic. Academically, we provide more room for Hong Kong students who are suffering from um, this, kind of, this kind of suppression. These are great measures to be taken. Thank you, Mr. Law. Uh, Dr. Martin, uh, the, the agreement, uh, uh, the, the basic law, Sino-British Joint Declaration, stip you know, uh, stipulate uh, with regard to Hong Kong's status, uh, how it's going to be treated, uh, the way the relationship will work. Uh, as an international treaty, is the joint declaration enforceable at the United Nations or in other international venues? As an international treaty, it's registered and its duration till 2047, my understanding from lawyers is it still remains in effect. Uh, in terms of enforceable, um, it doesn't have any teeth in it. There is no provision for punishment for either the United Kingdom or China for not abiding by the terms of it. Um, but there's certainly, as Mr. Yates pointed out, um, the international pressure that could be brought against China for not living up to its commitments. So in terms of the treaty, if I may make a quick comment about you asked Please. about the number of prisoners. I believe we're approaching about 1,500 people that have been arrested. The numbers go up every day. Um, there were just a few arrested last night in Sha Tin. Uh, and in terms of locations, the detention center that Nathan referred to later uh, is one that's normally used for Ill illegal immigrants. It's not one that's used for Hong Kong residents. It does not have closed circuit TV capacity so that when those being detained are being visited by police officers or any enforcement officers, uh, there's no records of what's taking place. 
Like I said earlier, rumors are quite rampant in Hong Kong. There have been reports and allegations of, of, of abuse, torture, and I, I fear to say even worse that has taken place at that center. Some members of the de democratically elected legislative council, that is say members who are elected by the general public, have asked to go to that detention center as, for example, US members of Congress would like to go to detention centers in the United States. Hong Kong government has denied access. They said, no, you may not see. So I would encourage, for example, if you want to find out more about it, that, and if you go to Hong Kong, asking to see where these people are being held is one of the things you could consider. Is there a way for the members of the Legislative Council to request uh, perhaps a United Nations delegation to inspect or to attend these detention centers as well? Uh, can they do so? I believe that would be, in, be within the authority of the Legislative Council in Hong Kong. They operate under very different rules. Uh, most legislation in Hong Kong is introduced by the chief executive and secretaries. It's a parliamentary system. So there's strict restrictions on the type of legislation LegCo members, shorthand, can introduce. Right now, they're not in session. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Part of the reason they're not in session is the chambers were damaged on July 1 of this year in a demonstration. But it's also traditionally the time when they're in recess. So in terms of this extradition bill, it has not been formally withdrawn yet. All that Carrie Lam has said is that she will submit such a withdrawal request to the Legislative Council when they reconvene in, in October. So I would also say we should be watching to see whether or not that takes place and what exactly transpires on when that occurs. Very good. Thank you. Senator Markey. Yeah, thank you. So um, two days ago, President uh, Trump at the UN said, we are carefully monitoring the situation in Hong Kong. The world fully expects that the Chinese government will honor its binding treaty made with the British and registered with the United Nations in which China commits to protect Hong Kong's freedom, legal system, and democratic way of life. How China chooses to handle the situation will say a great deal about its role in the world in the future. But previously, President Trump referred to the protest as, quote, riots, and said that China, that China quote, will have to deal with that themselves. So, Mr. Law, what, what, what is the consequence of such a mixed signal coming from the President of the United States? Thank you, um, Senator Markey. And um, obviously, we, we noticed that there's like kind of a volatile stance taking place by the administration. And even though that um, there's sometimes like uh, President Trump has been speaking up for Hong Kong, but sometimes the messages are, are quite um, confused in, in certain degree of matters. So um, I do believe that as um, well uh, a force in the council and in the Congress, there's been uh, a huge momentum pushing forward the Hong Kong democracy and Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, and it should create a momentum that actually not only in the Congress, but in the administration side, they should take prompt actions in order to handle the situ situation of Hong Kong and give support uh, of the people of Hong Kong who are fighting for human rights and justice. So I, I do believe that um, even though sometimes uh, we get mixed message, 
but um, as long as we follow the measures that we have uh, registered, we have um, um, will kind of um, make it into a law, and then we monitor the application of the administration, urge them to do in accordance to what's happening in Hong Kong and uh, the the violation of the international treaty that China has been having. And I do believe that uh, U.S. could be a strong support not only for Hong Kong, but also for the liberal world and for the justice and human rights that we all share. So um, I, I do think that um, adding more exposure of Hong Kong issue in the Congress and in the society as a whole indeed help to push forward to that direction and also sending delegation uh, from the Congress to uh, wherever uh, the, the, the Sun Oakland uh, holding center that we mentioned or generally to observe the situation of Hong Kong to feedback to the American public and to the global community could also be a helping hand for them to realize and understand the situation of Hong Kong. Let me ask you this. this we're 22 years now into the agreement between the Chinese government and Great Britain. And at the end of that 50-year period, which would be 2047, Hong Kong would fully be part of China. That's the agreement. So we're now 22 years into. We're now 44% of the way through. Uh, this process towards 2047. So what does it mean, from your perspective, as a preview of coming attractions, um, that China is now, through Carrie Lam, ordering these kind of actions in terms of what your greatest fears might be as to what will happen as an erosion of rights before we reach 2047, where under the agreement, Hong Kong is fully uh, part of China. Um, well, um, I, I do believe that we have to send a strong signal to the Chinese Communist Party that in Hong Kong issue, they cannot get it in both ways. The special economic um, status of Hong Kong is uh, kind of uh, being determined by the Hong Kong Policy Act 1982 in the US Congress and the, the other parts of the world followed. And uh, if the China has uh, had a mind of kind of um, scraping out all the contents of uh, the one country, two system, but remaining the shelf of it in order to uh, make an illusion that Hong Kong operates well and the autonomy is still being preserved, then I think they are making huge mistakes because Hong Kong people could clearly understand our autonomy has been stripped away and we urge uh, the Chinese Communist Party to know that if they want to destroy Hong Kong's democ democracy and autonomy, then it cannot just simply reap its economic outcome. So, yeah, so thank you, again, thank you for your courage. Um, Mr. Martin, what do you think this means in terms of the deadline arriving uh, now? Um, in, uh, <clears throat> in a relatively brief period of time from a historical perspective. The joint declaration stipulates that, that Hong Kong will be treated by China in a particular way and for 50 years. But it makes no clear statement about what happens at the end of that 50-year period. Back when I was living in Hong Kong uh, on July 1, 1997, and I saw the Union Jack come down for the last time, um, Many of us were, were hopeful um, but concerned about what the future would bring for a city that we know uh, and lived in at the time. Um, at that time, I think the feeling was that over time there will be changes 
and that by 2047, there will be full democracy in Hong Kong, as promised in the basic law, not in the joint declaration, uh, and that things will have changed, as Mr. Yates had described, in mainland China, so that the situation would be so different than what it was at that time that it would not be particularly problematic. Events of the last few years, I think, indicate that maybe that was overly optimistic. Um, and that, for example, this pledge for universal suffrage in choosing the chief executive and all the members of the LegCo by universal suffrage um, is not going to be provided in a manner that people like Nathan and others feels allows them true democracy. So they talk about genuine universal suffrage. What they want is democracy, the right to vote for candidates of their choice. And another element that I hear among the young people is self-determination. They want to be able to have a say in their own future. In 1984, when the Joint Declaration was signed, and during that negotiation process, there were no Hong Kong representatives at the table. It was Chinese officials and British officials negotiating. And ever since then, any time there's been a critical issue, the people of Hong Kong feel like, many of them, not all of them, feel like their voice isn't being heard. So um, by 2047, I'll, I'll be quite elderly, and I don't know if I'll be around to see what transpires. Um, but what Nathan and Joshua Wong and the younger people are saying is they want to have self-determination. They want democracy. So when I, I, I went with President Clinton uh, in 1998, July of 1998, on his trip for, to China for 10 days. So I was with him during that trip. One of the leaders said to us privately that um, they were going to follow the model of perestroika in Russia at that time. This is pre-Putin. Um, to open up more opportunities for entrepreneurial activity inside of their country, and that they believed that perestroika made a lot of sense for China as well, but that they disagreed with the Soviet Union, with the Russians, with regard to glasnost, openness, that that had created from their perspective a mess inside of Russia, and they will not make that mistake. They will follow perestroika, but not glasnost. Restructuring of the economy, but not openness. So. That was their plan, beginning in 1997, 98, that they would move in that direction. And as Mr. Yates has said, they've now lost all humility, um, and, um, and, uh, and they are actually implementing, more fully, their anti-glasnose policy, not just you know, in Hong Kong, but across the entirety of their country. Um, that is at the heart of what they're doing. So what from your perspective, is the goal that China has for Hong Kong uh, in 2047. What do they want to be the conditions under which the people in Hong Kong are living? Any of you? My presumption is, number one, uh, they fully intend for the Communist Party of China to remain in total control of China by 2047. Uh, and I, I, I think that we look back at the handover, at the close of the Cold War, it was inconceivable that a communist party was going to endure, even get stronger over time. Uh, but as far as their plans, they look for one country, one system. Uh, they look for party first, ethnicity second, uh, 
and then whatever is in their constitution. So for Hong Kong, what does that mean? In Hong Kong would be, a, it would be a part of one single Chinese system under communist control. And their system would be the same as the system in Beijing or Correct. Shanghai. The one they impose Xi'an. upon everybody else. No everybody more else. special status. No special status, no special rights, no special uh, freedoms. Right. If we look at uh, just the images of the pro-Beijing, pro-communist agitators, not just in Hong Kong, they've, they've, they've attacked people in Australia who are demonstrating, they've attacked people in Canada who are demonstrating. Uh, there is a virulent nationalism that is, that is uh, spreading in China where they feel entitled and demanding of respect. Do they, feel, do, they feel, do, do they feel that um, under the agreement, that the people of Hong Kong have no choice but to live under rigid communistic control by 2047. Do they think there's any wiggle room in that agreement towards uh, achieving that goal? I think the Chinese government has willfully disregarded the treaty as even being a treaty. Uh, and uh, their, their decision tree, it seems to me, is first, if you're ethnically Chinese, you owe your allegiance to us whether you're a citizen of the United States, the United Kingdom, or anywhere else. And out of duty to us, you then must follow and respect the leaders of the party. We have a leader of the most populous authoritarian government who's afraid of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, if, if there are people who post images of Winnie the Pooh on social media associating with him, they literally get locked up. So for, for Mr. Law, um, he has... Uh, essentially 28 years to go, uh, 26 years to go, um, before all of these freedoms are gone, and you will be alive, Mr. Law. You will be living in that world. So perhaps you could speak to how concerned you are about what is going to unfold if Mr. Yates is 100% correct. Well, um, 2047 has always been a landmark for Hong Kong and is a question that has been hanging in our hearts and minds about what the future of Hong Kong would be, so that we propose a self-determination uh, direction which we wanted to decide our own future, but obviously uh, China has been so rigid about it. But I do believe that we've got 20-something years to change China, and I don't think China is unchangeable. We, we need to have faith on that. Even though the past engagement policy they have been adopting seems like kind of um, futile in terms of transforming it into a more democratic nation, but I do believe that uh, a change of um, China-U.S. policy and also the struggle of Hong Kong indeed help opening up China and the way China has been supporting has been being supported by nationalism and economic success. These factors are declining. They're, they're on a um, um, well, downturn roll of their own history. So I do believe that in that critical moment of time, if we join hands together, we can actually make something out of it. So what is the role that you envision for the United States and other Western nations in helping to advance your vision in terms of our relationship with China? Uh, well, of course, I, I do think that... Um, for a certain degree, um, that the way we treat China has to see it as an expanded authoritarian regime that actually eating up the fruit of democracy and sending out a totalitarian order to the rest of the world. So we have to be aware of that, not only just to make business to them, but we need to have a value-oriented 
policy to Donald Trump. Are you concerned that Donald Trump may be subordinating human rights issues to his trade deal uh, objectives in the short run, and then that sends a signal to China that uh, they can continue with business as usual uh, with regard to Hong Kong? Uh, well, obviously, um, we don't know the result of uh, the trade talk, but I, I do believe that if the administration is sending strong signal on Hong Kong's protests, supporting them firmly, and um, well, urging Beijing to solve that puzzle, solve that question, um, solve that problem with a civilized way to honor their own works, I do believe it's a good start to show the world that, well, US and China, or the world and China, we are not, not just talking about business. We are talking about human rights and the things that matters to the all the billion population in mainland China and the billions of population in the world. So I do believe that this is the direction to go. Thank and I do you. believe that by the time of 2047, there's a possibility that we are no longer living in an authoritarian country. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you for your courage and thank all of you for your expert testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, Mr. Yates, uh, in, you also talked about our China strategy and how we rethink this. Senator Markey and I passed uh, and signed into law by the President a bill called the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. Uh, that builds on three things, uh, national security, economic opportunity, rule of law, human rights, and democracy. Uh, and the state and foreign operations appropriations bill that uh, is out of committee um, puts about $2.55 billion for uh, the effort and the implementation of ARIA. would love to get your feedback on that. Some of these resources will be used to help uh, talk about democracy, to help with human rights conditions, to pursue um, awareness and, and civil society opportunities uh, throughout Asia, and uh, perhaps we can find ways to utilize here as well uh, with, this, uh, with this new opportunity through ARIA. Um, just a final thought and final question, Mr. Yates. Uh, I'll direct it to you if anybody else wants to apply. What, what, what message, what you lesson, and you mentioned a little bit of it earlier, uh, does Taiwan take from what's happening in Hong, Hong Kong today? Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, very, very clearly, uh, there, have been very, there have been different histories for the people of Taiwan and the people of Hong Kong. Uh, being a British colony is different than being a Japanese colony living under martial law and then coming up with your own democracy in Taiwan. They're different perspectives. Uh, and I wouldn't characterize the relationship between the two peoples of having been particularly close over the decades. Uh, I think that perceptions and connections have profoundly changed in the images that the, that the people of Taiwan have watched in recent months. Uh, I think there have been profound lessons learned. Number one, uh, talk within Taiwan political circles about whether one can make a deal with the Communist Party of China to buy peace, even temporarily, is something that the voters of Taiwan are even willing to accept. Uh, I think it's fundamentally changed some of those perceptions. I think that the people of Taiwan feel a camaraderie, even uh, are inspired by the courage of the people they've seen in Hong Kong stand up. Uh, and I, I think it's important to note uh, that these people know that when they go to the streets, and, it's, and while I admire the young people for doing it, we have a large cross-section of Hong Kong's entire population doing it. They know that their images are scanned. They know that their identities are compromised. They know that they don't necessarily have to face a Tiananmen-like crackdown that in due time and, and of, the, of the government's own choosing, they may face some kind of retribution. So they, I think the people of Taiwan have truly admired the courage that they've witnessed to the people of Hong Kong to stand up. I think if Beijing was true about its uh, professed desire for unification with Taiwan, uh, going about it all wrong, 
uh, and uh, what, what, they're, what they're doing, I just think, reinforces the determination of the people of Taiwan to go their own way. Uh, and to the extent that there are people in the American policy community or elsewhere that think that that's a problem, they need to work with their friends in Beijing to change, change what's been done because no force has driven the Taiwan people further away from some affinity towards China than has the actions by the Communist Party and its leadership. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Martin, did you wish to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I would. Um, in my testimony, I referred to one country, two systems, a model that was originally developed mm -hmm. for use with Taiwan. Uh, and it, it would seem the actions of recent days would indicate to Taiwan that one country, two systems may not be a desirable model. Um, and therefore, those who in Taiwan who support separatism from the mainland are not interested in reunification in any form probably are feeling a little more emboldened politically in, in Taiwan. Uh, some things that I've seen about the upcoming presidential elections indicate that China may have really helped out the prospects for President Tsai to get reelected. Mm -hmm. uh, and China has a habit, it seems, of doing things like that rather not very deftly um, to get contrary results to what they want by showing their hands in a certain way. And then to bring it into Hong Kong, and I do see similar trends in Taiwan, um, you're seeing this development of a, a separate entity from this sort of global Chinese. Uh, interviews that are done, regular surveys in Hong Kong about how they identify themselves. Increasingly, people just say, no hai Hong Kongian. I am a Hong Konger. No reference to China, no reference to being Chinese. The surveys offer the opportunity to say, no hai Hong uh, in Cantonese. Um, they don't do that very much anymore. And the last time I was in Taiwan, which was a few years ago, I saw a similar attitude emerging in the younger generation. They don't identify themselves as Chinese anymore. They're Taiwanese. Um, and so I, my final comment is there's kind of this tension socially, culturally, that I see in Hong Kong and in Taiwan of developing a separate identity from the greater China concept. But at the same time, the mainland economy becoming more infiltrated into or engaged in, in, in both Hong Kong, Taiwan, and elsewhere. And... Um, Senator Markey referred to uh, perestroika and glasnost, and those of us old enough to remember when that was, was uh, an issue. Perestroika has a downside sometimes. If perestroika allows the, these economies to get influence and power within the, the country, then those governments can use that economic influence for political means and other means. Mm -hmm. And in Hong Kong, there, there's... Back in 97, when I was working for the Trade Development Council, this is one of the things we talked about. W would this opening up of mainland China subjugate the Hong Kong economy to the mainland economy so that the desire for Hong Kong to have a high degree of autonomy would be undermined? And I would be concerned that that may be a reality or becoming a reality in Hong Kong. And I know in Taiwan there are political figures who are extremely concerned about the same thing. Thank you, Dr. Martin. Uh, Mr. Law, last word. I'm going to close out the, uh, the, the hearing here. Anything you'd like to add? 
Well, um, thanks, Chairman Garland, for um, having uh, the, this hearing. I do believe that uh, it means a lot to Hong Kong people because the intense attention to Hong Kong situation uh, shows that um, the free societies are watching, and the ways that Chinese Communist Party has been doing on Hong Kong is definitely a proof that um, is ruthlessness and also atrocity will not be treasured by the global community, and you will react in a, well, a concrete actions, and these are vital importance for Hong Kong people. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Law. And when it comes to your fight for freedom, your fight for autonomy, and the, uh, the opportunities you stand for, we are all Hong Kongers. Uh, thank you very much for being here. Um, thank you to everyone for attending today's hearing and to uh, the witnesses, obviously, for your testimony. Uh, for the information to members, the record uh, will be open for uh, until the close of business on Monday, including members to submit questions to the record. I would kindly ask that you would respond as quickly as possible should those be submitted for the record. Those answers will be made a part of the record. Uh, and again, with the thanks of this committee, uh, the hearing is now adjourned.